Hello and welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cars and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, man behind the machine, and to my right, your left is Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And then all the way across the airwaves, it's Theodore under the PC, under the person of Christ. Theodore, Theodore, Sebastian. Today we've got what you'd think would be a Michael episode. Honestly, did I set this up? I forget who put this on our list of topics, but Sebastian has actually taken the reins. Um, the topic today is Christian nationalism and we are now on the prowl setting up ads whatever else trying to get them views and pay for dollar bills um just kidding i when will this channel be monetized lord knows um, <laughs> and even if it is like immediate they're going to immediately pull our dollar bills from us but um we're going to we're going to touch on a very controversial topic and it's in the news because because it's in the news we're going to touch on it. it's already something we've touched on this podcast christian nationalism now before i begin sebastian made a really good outline to start with what all Christians should agree with. So Sebastian, I'll let you handle it for a little bit. There's a Psalm, Psalm 2, that has um, the son, Jesus, being put over the nations and he rules them all with an iron rod. I don't know if you want to expand on this. Sure, I'll read it. So this will be our Bible-based, this will be a Bible-based discussion. We want to handle the text and apply it to either our personal lives or society at large. We're going to discuss what this means. So Psalm 2 will be our conversation opener. I might as well read the whole thing. It's relevant. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. End of quote. So it's from Psalm 2, and it's not just the only the only image of Jesus Christ coming like this. Jesus coming back in judgment is the hope of all Christian denominations that remotely call themselves Bible-believing. So we would all assert, those who are against Christian nationalism, those who are pro-it, as long as we're Bible-believing Christians, we know that Christ's dominion is coming or has already come or is in the process of coming. And there's, there's many different opinions on mm -hmm. how Christ's kingdom is coming. Um, there's amillennialists and postmillennialists and premillennialists and other views probably out there that are decently orthodox. <laughs> I want to emphasize the fact that all of those views believe that Jesus Christ is coming back at some point and will reign over all of the nations, whether that's in a end times classic left behind style return where he just instantly rules and then rules over other nations via total conquest, or it's a slow progression of the church age where um, the world gets more and more evangelized. Um, and then eventually there's a, a one final apostasy or in the post division where there is um a gradual increase in the kingdom across the earth until all nations enter a Christian golden age for a thousand years and then the Lord returns. And whatever your view is, we all agree that Jesus is going to rule over the actual political institutions of the earth. 
And so when we approach the topic of Christian nationalism, we should keep in mind that um, as all Christians, whatever your thoughts on Christian nationalism are, we should hold that Christ should, and it is good for Christians to look forward to Christ having dominion over all politics at some point. So our response to Christian nationalism, even if it's bad, isn't to say that Christians shouldn't have anything to do with politics, because clearly we are looking forward to a day when Christ takes over all of politics. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there any more you or Theodore you guys want to say on like some Christian presuppositions we should all share before we start talking about Christian nationalist specifics? Yes, I do. Remember, Christians are individual people. Mm -hmm. We are all in different walks of life. Michael, if it's okay to share, just became a parent. Yeah. So we shared it last time. Yeah, yeah. So he has a family. He works. Theodore is working. Same with your wife. You both work. I am not uh, engaged. So I, but I work. We have different lives. We have different positions, different roles. All this goes to say is no matter where we are, Christ, the commands of Christ still apply to us in very real ways. And they're pretty much the same across the board. Right. The, all, all, all his preachings, showing fruits of the Spirit, etc. You get the point. What happens when a politician is either a Christian or becomes a Christian in office, as you saw in the Roman Empire? If you lived, if you, if you lived in the Roman Empire, you're going to see some laws that are very messed up, such as the father of the family has the right to not take in the child, the son or daughter, and not name the child and then throw it out in the street mm-hmm. to be killed. That was a practice, a law, it was legal to do. You're a Christian governor. What do you do at that point? Do you follow, you have to do your duty, you have to enforce the law, and you can also throw in any other Roman law as well, either or any country today in the world. Do you change the law? Do you keep the law the same, just doing your job, not doing anything? We're going to argue that something's got to change if you want to truly live out your faith in whatever position you're in in your life. You can't just continue doing evil or letting evil things just go unpunished or happening. Right. And, and we, we brush over that really quickly. We've had episodes on like Jehovah's Witnesses and should Christians be involved in politics and whatever else. Um, there are groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and others that are cults um, that would say that Christians should be entirely not involved in politics because they believe in like the non-violence principle and the governments are inherently violent because they enforce their will via via jail time and troops and so that no any christian should never be involved in politics we fundamentally disagree with that um we believe in a separation of church and state in the very traditional sense of that not in the new angled sense of it we believe that church leadership should not also be state leadership and vice versa state leadership should not be elders of the church Mm -hmm. Um, and that's purely from a power standpoint we believe that in god's law the state um was not also priests and when they tried to mix them except in one case of david and of course jesus is the priest king um, but besides those two special occasions people like uzziah who tried to go offer the high priestly prayers Mm -hmm. himself in the temple were cursed for it with leprosy and so we believe it is a god-ordained separation between church and state not to say that the church doesn't preach into the state and that there aren't church adherence inside the government um, but we do believe in a separation of power in that way um, and we believe it's part of god's law so i don't know where i'm going with that i just want to i put that out there that that we don't believe in the jehovah's witnesses style christians should be 
totally out involved, not involved in politics because politics is inherently dirty. And if you do hold that viewpoint, you should really have some self-examination because it's really only cults that mostly hold that viewpoint. And, it, and they're also non-interventionist, non, non-violent people who say you can't shoot anybody for self-defense, you can't use force. Um, and there's a lot of problems with that kind of philosophy. So in any case, we believe inherently as Orthodox Christians that you can be involved in and should be involved in politics as far as God calls you. And I'll bring scripture into this because it ties in right at the end of Philippians chapter 4. Of all the places, the greetings normally a lot of people tend to skip over. This one caught my eye. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. To the grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. In Spanish, it even says who, be, who are in the household of the emperor. I mean, same thing, really. They're Christians in the political system of Rome. Mm-hmm. And aren't we called to preach to all peoples and nations of the earth? Does that mean we shouldn't preach, preach to kings, rulers, mayors, politicians? No, we have to preach to everybody. So you're going you're gonna to have to... You actually, we have precedent from Scripture. There will be people in politics who actually worship the one true God. Right. So what happens? What happens then? So that this all this goes to say this puts aside the, the idea that Christians will never be in politics or should never be in politics. Yes. We have precedent from Scripture. They are called brothers and sisters and saints who belong to the household of the Roman Emperor. So we've established two things so far, and I'm going to hand it out to Theodore for a third thing too. So pay attention, Theodore. Um, but first, we established that part of Christ's coming again is making all the nations under His feet. So every Christian should look forward to a day, whatever that day comes. But they're looking forward to a day when Christ returns and puts all nations under his feet politically because he is a king and king king is a political title. Two, that Christians themselves should be prepared to be part of that. They don't need to be. I mean, everybody has a different calling. Some are missionaries, some are not politicians, but there are Christians who are called to be governors and, and parts of governor campaigns and the household of Caesar, whatever else, that it's not an unclean position. It's a totally good and normal occupation. And that as part of Christ's coming, if it is indeed slow and gradual to any extent, which I think even pre-millennialists like myself believe that Christ's dominion has gone out to the nations even today, uh, that it's a good thing that Christians are part of politics. So those two things have been established regardless of where you stand under the phrase Christian nationalism. So my third opinion point here is what does Christian nationalism mean? And Theodore, I know you're not, I think you're not as deeply involved in this conversation as me and Sebastian, so I'm going to hand it to you. What do you think Christian nationalism means? And maybe you'll get us a better idea of like what normal people would think of it as. Well, um, before that, I just wanted to point out, um, you said it's good for Christians to be involved politically. And I was reading... <laughs> <laughs> the book that I already told you. Well, the book that you guys told me about. Uh-huh. Or Sebastian recommended. Power. Right. And in there came across Bishop Ambrose of Milan, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he um, had a very influential relationship with the emperor. I think it was the emperor. Theodosius. The, the guy who made Christianity the official religion. Of their own empire. Yeah. And it might have been Theodosius also that, uh, like, in a, in a fit of rage, commanded, like, 
the Thessalonians to be slaughtered. Yep. And then, like, I don't know, 10 minutes later, he thought, oh, goodness, what have I done? And then he tried to stop it, but they were already, like, <laughs> there, and already thousands had been killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ambrose, a uh, bishop, comes to the emperor and says, okay, what have you done? You're... You're going to be banished from the church. You're, you're going to repent. You're going to have to do this stuff. You're going to have to be so serious and solemn and repentant and whatever. Um, otherwise, you're not going to be back in this church because you're <laughs> I, going to be an apostate um, if he doesn't correct his ways. But um, And then, so Theodosius actually was extremely committed to proving to Ambrose that he was repentant. Like, he would... Oh, I forget all the things. <sighs> Do a bunch of drastic things and public things and effortful, uh, difficult, hurtful things to him. But um, <laughs> eventually, he was forgiven and let back in the church and whatnot so mm -hmm. there's just that but then there's also nathan in the bible with king david um when king david sinned had uriah killed and then uh um took uh Bathsheba as his wife mm -hmm. um nathan came to david and said look at this wicked thing you have done and then david because he respected the prophet of god he was involved with church he was well i mean Jew, though, <laughs> church, as it was in the Old Testament, um, he was able to be corrected because mm -hmm. he held himself to that higher standard, God's standard, because he uh, respected God mm -hmm. and respected the church, uh, priests, pastors, etc. Right. Amen. And that's, so that's back good, to your question. Well, it's a good view of how Christians can influence politics correctly is to look at people like St. Ambrose or Nathan or others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question. <laughs> what I already Christian talked about you, to you. You take your own question. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> what do I think Christian nationalism is? Uh -huh. um, I don't know. I guess I'll just say that. Uh, Christian nationalism is where you have rulers who hold themselves to Christian standards and Christian doctrine, like orthodoxy, orthopraxy, mm -hmm. et cetera. That's and therefore good. they are able to be held accountable. They're willing to be held accountable and repentant and uh, revise their ways. Um, yeah, and I think if you define it like that, no Christian should rightfully deny Christian nationalism. Of course, we should pray and aspire to be Christian leaders in our country with all the caveats we've just given, all the proofs that we've just given of mm -hmm. how Christian scriptures speak about being involved in politics. Um, we should desire that kind of Christian nationalism. I, I want to give fair credence to the, the other side, though. Um, those who would not like the label Christian nationalists, because there are plenty, and some of them have great reasons, so let's discuss them. Um, 
I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that there's a current controversy and that's why we're talking about it right now. And that's between totally conservative theonomic, meaning they believe in God's law Christians over whether or not we should use this phrase Christian nationalism based on what it means. Um, one of them is a good good uh, teacher that we appreciate, James White. James White does not believe, um, generally, I mean, I'm probably putting words into his mouth here because everything is still being defined, but he does not believe that Christian nationalism as it is currently being defined is a very good thing. Um, and there are others like Douglas Wilson out of Idaho and Stephen Wolf here in Minnesota and uh, Adam Robles and others um, who are pushing for Christian nationalism of, of various degrees and designs. And so um, it's an active discussion right now on how you define Christian nationalism. So with all those caveats, at some point, it might be the total majority, undisputable view that Christian nationalism means something that we don't like. But as of right now, the definition is kind of up in the air. And so we are pushing towards using it in its proper definition. And I would say mm-hmm. that a proper definition of Christian nationalism is this. It is the pursuit of the betterment of one's nation. That's nationalism, right? This is pursuing the betterment of your nation, your nation above other nations, mm-hmm. but a, a Christian kind of nationalism. So you're pursuing the good of your nation through Christian virtue, Christian law. Christian standards. Christian standards. Which means that unlike other forms of nationalism, like raw American patriotic nationalism can end up with the um, unbridled violence and intervention in foreign countries we don't need to and, and obedience to the flag, even if the flag is supporting babies and whatever else, um, that is a blind raw nationalism that we don't appreciate. I mean, and there are definitely Christian churches in the United States that are way too just plain old nationalistic. They put the flag on their podiums and they... They um, support the United States, whatever the United States is doing, and they're super pro-military, even when the military is doing ungodly things. So that's the kind of nationalism I don't appreciate. And Christian nationalism is not that. It should not be that. It should be a modifier to nationalism. And when you have um, churches that are just nationalists and they happen to be Christians, that's not Christian nationalism. That is just nationalism, which we would... um, Nationalism can be a good thing, but... If not modified by the Christian aspect, it is a bad thing. Yes, as you have seen in many, many Orthodox churches throughout the, with a big O, Orthodox, that in many sometimes they have been just pawns of the state for propaganda, like in Russia right now, unfortunately. So like right. whatever the man says, Putin tells him to do. So yeah, we're going to include it in our sermon, sure, because well, they don't want to get executed, but right, but and, they're just a pawn at that point. And that means those those churches. They claim to be Christian, but they're really just nationalists. They're really just arms of the state, which is why we do not believe in sacralism. We don't believe in the combining of the church and the state. That's how God's law outlines things, is not to have them combined. And so we would say that should prevent um, purely nationalist churches from forming. Yes. Now, as the minority in the group, I also want to say that, and we're just being cheeky, uh, this doesn't mean a nation around a specific ethnic group either. Because the gospel calls us to an even higher standard than just your immediate group of relatives or ethnicity, whatever you want to call it. it says the kingdom of God will include all kinds of people, ethnic groups, families, men, women, children, young, old. So for any of them that they may be saying that they want an Anglo-Saxon culture or something along those lines... They are going against the scripture because you're narrowing down exclusively on one form of culture and claiming that is Christian identity, which it isn't. As 
you know me at this point. There have been Mongolians that have been Christian. There have been Indians Christian. There have been German Christians. There have been Latin, Italian Christians, African Christians like St. Augustine from uh, Ipoh and Carthage. So Spanish Christians, Peruvian Christians. So claiming that one national identity, ethnic identity is, Christi is Christianity, that's also you just missed the boat. Yeah, shit. and I'm going to, so I'll dance on these two. So the first one we're, we're shooting down immediately is that Christian nationalism should not mean, so we don't mean it to mean and don't want it to mean, regular old nationalism. And I remember at my church previously, Bethlehem Baptist Church, ex-pastor who left over this issue was so upset with January <laughs> 6th, you know, the worst thing since 9-11, like triple, triple 9-11s was when um, there was a protest at the Capitol and they entered the building. Um that so bad, so bad. And they claimed that that was Christian nationalism because people, Christians were claiming to be pro-Trump and they said that God had ordained Trump to be the president. And so God, you know, there's all these false preacher kind of people from Pentecostal churches who were like, I've had a vision, six visions that, that Donald Trump is going to take over and he's going to have a coup here or whatever else. Um, obviously totally failed, worst coup ever if it was an attempted coup on January 6th. So putting aside the reality of the situation, um, Christians that claim false prophecy uh, should be, should be dismissed and taken out as false prophets, totally separate from the nationalist issue. And then secondly, any Christian who believes that Donald Trump is their spearhead should be should be questioned because Donald Trump denies salvation by faith alone. He believes in works-based salvation. You know, there's a lot of Christian problems with Donald Trump that make him a heretic. Um, so keep that in mind. However, Christians just supporting Donald Trump, like I voted for Donald Trump in 2020 because he was the best of the options that were likely to win. I do not believe that's Christian nationalism just because I supported him. And would it have been better had he taken over? Um, I believe politically, yeah, it would have been. Um, however, all this caveat is we know the Lord is sovereign and that he works through um, bad things and that we as finite human beings don't know exactly what God is planning. So when the Soviet Union takes over Russia um, in God's scale of things, clearly he allowed it to happen. So it must have been good overall. Um so we don't deny all the good that can happen from the saints and the growth of the church that can happen under persecution. Don't deny it at all. But if Christians have the choice between letting their country become like the Soviet Union or North Korea or like the United States where there's tolerance to Christians, we should pick the tolerance to Christians. We should pick the more nominally Christian culture over the super evil secular culture. Lord bring what he will and the Lord can use whatever he wants as far as persecution goes. But Christians should not be on the boat of, wanting more persecution because they think it will be good like we we aren't in positions to say whether or not persecution will be good let the lord decide on that one and we should be pushing for good law and so it's perfectly fine for christians to push for a a good candidate over another so pushing for donald trump over joe biden um that's that's fine um, what you don't want is false prophecy about him being like the messiah donald trump being the messiah or that uh the lord told me he's going to win i mean that's all just wrong putting aside the Christian nationalist issue. Uh -huh. So that's, uh -huh. that's one thing we're stamping down is that that nationalism. That's, that's okay. not what Christian nationalism is. Two, uh -huh. what Sebastian was saying, sorry for the rant. Two, is there are members of the Christian nationalist conversation in the conservative churches right now, like Stephen Wolf in the United States, or in Minnesota, in the United States, of course, um, who have mentioned, he wrote a couple books on Christian nationalism, is kind of first to the scene, and mm -hmm. so he's trying to define what Christian nationalism is. Um, he claims to not even be a theonomist. He doesn't even believe God's law should apply to the U.S. I do not like Stephen Wolf's current position. Maybe he'll turn around, but I'm just going to put, you, put it out right now. I own one of his books. Um, I've read him. I've seen him. I've seen <laughs> podcasters interview him who I totally respect. I do not like Stephen Wolf's position on politics. 
I'm going to put that out right now. And he had a, a tweet, some sort of media post, um, that said that white evangelicals are the ones that are holding the nation together right now and that we should like give it off to white evangelicals, which statistically is true, I suppose, right? Like white evangelicals vote better than other racial blocks. Um, but we know as members of gospel-leading churches that we shouldn't be categorized by some arbitrary thing like white. And what that really sounds like, white evangelicals, really just sounds like wanting to make the nation um, one one ethnicity or like ban the other ethnicities, mm. um, which he didn't all right say that, so all those caveats. But we would not want Christian nationalism to mean that we um, ethno-purge because, and we'll get into this, Christian nationalism can mean an imposition of God's law on the nation, and God's law includes blasphemy laws. So there are laws in God's law that say you cannot proselytize other religions. Okay? And Mm -hmm. it's in God's law. I think we should seriously consider it as Christians and whether or not it's good, because it's in God's law. I would advocate that it's good. You want to be careful on how you you would implement those in the U.S. However, what you never want those to, to blossom into is a blasphemy law that includes you can't be of a different race, and otherwise you have to leave. Like that's, that's just straight up racism. It's against so many verses in Galatians and Ephesians and throughout the New Testament about there being no other races except the Christian race now and the human race. So we don't want Christian nationalism to mean ethno-nationalism either. Mm-hmm. And you keep yeah. saying, well done. Well done with all those caveats, actually. Now, I want, you can both tag team on this, but you keep saying God's law. It's like you keep saying laws, it's Christian standards. Well, I'm already sold. I want you to sell it to me again. Why should the U.S. be held then to Christian standards based on what even what we read on Psalm 2 or any other passage of the Bible that you might think of? You're like, theater just doesn't want to... <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. He's, he's ready. I'll let you go first, theater. He's ready. Either one. dog sitting. The dog's woofing. Oh, okay. Do you have a position on... on uh... Why should the United States be held to God's standards? First, yeah, we gave all the caveats, but why should we even be considering having God's standards part of our laws, part of our society, whatever, what you name it? Because otherwise Joseph Smith will institute polygamy again. <laughs> all right, because I can And we back know polygamy is no not good in Leviticus. We're told be uh, no more than one wife. In Solomon, with his hundreds of wives and concubines, in his last days, I believe it says somewhere in the Bible, was led was led away from God to the pagan gods because of his wives. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I sorry. You can just go. Are you just going to say that uh, overall it's just going to be better? Uh, yes, that's basically and it's proven. And you can't tell. Theater's been like on the Mormon train recently. He's been talking about Mormon missionaries like all the time. So he's got Mormonism on the brain. Um, I agree with Theodore. You, there is no neutrality. I think a big problem with the United States Christians, the United States for the last 100 years has been we thought, we have thought that you could have a neutral government, a government of politics that isn't religious. Um, there is no such thing. Every single man, as Romans 1 would tell us, is either hating God or loving God. So you cannot have a neutral government. You cannot have a neutral business. You can't have a neutral life. You are either worshiping God or you're worshiping something else. Whether it's a false version of God, it's multiple gods, it's Joseph Smith's God, it's some other God, but you either worship the Lord in your politics or you worship somebody else. And so we would say 
that if you leave a, a society with a non-explicitly Christian law, you will end up with rapid perversion of that law because people create false religions all the time. So in the United States, I mean, it's evidenced clearly we had God-based law in all the states. All the states were Christian. They had official religions back in the founding of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so the laws reflected Christian values from God's law. God's law is good. It's from God. It's meant to govern states. And so we should appreciate it as it is. It's, it's the law that God gave Israel to run itself. So, of course, we should be modeling our governance off of God's law for Israel. Um, there's ways to manage that and some things are fulfilled. So, like, that's a conversation to have. But at least we should be attempting to model how God would have Israel ruled. That concept is called theonomy. It's technically different than Christian nationalism because I would say because theonomy is true and righteous, we should push for Christian nationalism, where some like Stephen Wolf and others in the movement that would disagree, they would say that God's law, give or take it. But being a Christian is good and being a nationalist is good, and therefore we should be Christian nationalists without God's law. And I say that is movement I don't want any part of. And on that mm -hmm. part, I will say James White, 100%, me and him line up. We should not have a Christian nationalist movement that doesn't involve pushing for righteous God's law. Um, but God's law is righteous and good, so it's good for the nation to have God's law. So of course the United States should bow the knee to God's law because it's good law and it creates human flourishing and we want our neighbors to flourish and therefore we should push for God's law here in the U.S. And we shouldn't allow, uh, we should not, um, uh, we should not not push. We should not just sit down for bad laws. There are bad laws in the United States and you don't see me like going Rambo style to blow up my <laughs> closest abortion clinic. Um, we've, we've had a whole conversation actually on the podcast about when should you physically rise up and the standards are pretty high because mm -hmm. uh, there have been many bad movements in the past of trying to rise up when it's not the proper time so you can go to that episode if you want it's like when should christians rebel against the government mm -hmm. um, so i have standards for when we should physically rise up um, but we shouldn't just be content and say the united states is a pagan nation and therefore it's fine that they have abortion laws no it's it's not fine i mean depends doesn't necessarily mean that you you start a war over it but um, it's not good that the united states has bad abortion laws we should fight against that as christians it's good to fight against that and you can fight civilly with electing people that support right. your position that would be willing to change the law of the land so there's absolutely no need for any physical violence at all in i mean yeah we we visit that episode, visit that episode. Yes, yes. so all of that being said you mentioned something extremely interesting that you said that it's beneficial to have god's law Yes. How? Why? I'm, I mean, I know, I know that. <laughs> uh, because, because otherwise, we have <laughs> polygamy. Yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and what's wrong with polygamy? I mean, Joseph Smith would say it's great. What's wrong with polygamy? I mean, I know, but it leads you after other gods. Yes, but well, that's the warning in Leviticus and the actuality of Solomon. But yes, yes. Practically speaking, though, it causes a lot of mental and probably physical harm on the wives that are involved. Mm -hmm. And children. And the children, too. Yeah. So even on a practical level, God designed society to function a certain way, which doesn't involve polygamy. It happens. And even, even if very holy people in the Bible had multiple wives like Abraham, the result wasn't pretty because it's not how God intended things to go out. So right. if humans live in a certain pattern, if they run society in a certain way, is what you've all been saying and what I am, you know, 
like Inception, you know, just trying to plan questions in your mind, asking leading questions, is that by running society a certain way, the world actually runs great. I could even conceive, imagine that that would have been, had the fall not happened, God would, the human society would have run following the precepts and the laws of God. And I actually think that's how in heaven it's going to be like, there's not going to be any need for the law back over there because you're not going to sin, but you will naturally automatically live in a way that is consistent with what God wants for humans to do. Yeah, And it's good. I, I think a little bit of the law, like it should be said on an episode about Christian nationalism where we're talking about God's law. One of the very basic primers to God's law is that there are laws that, that are fulfilled in Christ. Mm -hmm. So when we say that, don't think we mean instituting um, no pork. No or, pork laws, sure. things that have been fulfilled in Christ, like the, some of the priesthood laws or um, the atheists are always about the clothing one, mixing clothing, um, clothing with mixed fibers. Those are laws that have been fulfilled in Christ. Um, and like Sebastian just said, in heaven, when all believers are no longer sinning, there'll be no need for the um, civil laws, the laws that say if somebody murders, kill them um, after two or three witnesses and with all the rest of those because um, nobody will murder in heaven. However, there is moral law in God's law that's just straight up what you should do, what's good in certain situations to do, um, like leave, leave the edges of your field for the poor to glean, things like that. And that's just good practice. I don't think that goes away um, even in heaven because that's just good mm -hmm. teaching. It's like the Lord's teaching. So um, the law is good. It was given by God. And while some of it gets fulfilled, right, like um, the civil law gets fulfilled when Jesus is the civil authority, the only civil authority, right, when he mm -hmm. fully rules over the, the whole earth, um, directly like then that part of the law will be fulfilled because jesus is fulfilling it for us equally all the ceremonial laws um jesus fulfilled now for us he's currently our high priest he's currently the sacrificer he's currently the one that separates us from the world he fulfills all the ceremonial laws so the only um laws left right now are the civil and the moral um but the civil is still an active law today is still an active command for us today because jesus is king in heaven but not every knee is not every knee has bowed on the earth yet, so we are still obligated mm. to um, push for the civil law. That would be my advocation. Like no murder. Like no murder, and the proper punishment for murder is death. Uh huh. And then stealing is an interesting one. I just mentioned it briefly because I would say a lot of countries, if not all in the world, they do not punish stealing according to how God would they punish have punished it more severely than God punishes yes. it. And actually, that causes harm on the individual more than more than what is needed. In if you see examples of the twisting or perversion, if you want to say of the law of God within an episode on Islam, in which they go completely berserk on punishing thievery by cutting off the hand of the thief, right. where is that prescribed in the by Yahweh? That, that isn't so. You're supposed to pay reparations. You're not supposed to be thrown in jail or prison or whatever. You're supposed to pay reparations for what you stole. So the reason why you bring this up is because God in his infinite wisdom, literally, uh, designed that should this harm happen, stealing, mm -hmm. the proper way to resolve this between people that is in resolvable in a good way is to pay reparations. So if God designed things to work that way, we're arguing, shouldn't we follow the example that he gave us? I just want to bring it back home. You know, this is why we've been talking about it. If this came from God's mouth to Moses, we should take this seriously. We shouldn't just gloss over the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, we don't need that. We'll throw it, throw it out the window. 
we need to take seriously what God, what has come out of the mouth of God because mm-hmm. he clearly cares about this issue. Otherwise, he wouldn't have wasted time recording it in the Bible so that people 2,000 years after or would read it. Mm-hmm. And the, like we keep reiterating, there is no neutrality. You're going to have to have some sort of law about stealing. Right. Otherwise, you have no law about stealing and it's utter chaos because people are always stealing from each other. So society currently has laws on stealing. And as a Christian, the question is, should we just let those laws sit or should we push for them to be godly laws? Because in Islamic countries, the law against stealing is that you get your hands cut off for a certain amount of stealing, whatever the threshold mm-hmm. is. And we would say that's totally ungodly. It ruins that person's life. It's not a good way to deal with stealing. We should stop that. And equally in the United States, where we actually live, you know, it's easy enough to think if I were in Saudi Arabia, I'd be, you know, the most pious person ever stopping <laughs> the laws. But here in the United States... Um, when we're actually prosecuting stealing, you know, sometimes we don't prosecute stealing, but when we do prosecute stealing, like you mentioned, Sebastian, we throw people in jail and we think that's proper and good and they'll get rehabilitated. Um, But that's not in God's law. And I think we should seriously be convicted, honestly, convicted of a sinful attitude when we think that we know better than God's law, when we say it's better for somebody to go to jail instead of paying restitution like God's law says. Like that's, it's a, it's a sinful attitude to think we know better than God in that front. And he prescribed in Israel when they could have been p- putting people in prisons. It's not like I mentioned of the 21st century to have prisons. He could have prescribed prisons for thieves. He did not. So we should seriously consider why that was the case. And when we think we know better than God, we should second guess ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the, the primer. The reason I would consider myself a Christian nationalist is defined rightly is because I believe God's law is good and I am a Christian who wants to help my country. So I believe the way you help your country is by pushing for godly law. And now, theater and you may be thinking, Michael, uh, what, or the audience too, yeah, but what if I'm not a Christian or what of all the non-Christians in the nation? Mm -hmm. Well, what a great question. Augustine, I've been reading The City of God, actually. I'm blown away by how good it is. I've been putting it on the shelf for too long. I was like, wow, I have, clearly there's something wrong with me it's for having book, done man, it. It is. You. It is. But it's really thoughtful. You can tell that like, he clearly, he is actually dealing with this very same issue. I'll give you my uh, spark notes. Um, this pagans are complaining that because the Roman Empire just converted to Christianity, everything is hitting the, poop is hitting the fan. Everything is gone wrong the economy is exploding the armies are dying the barbarians are sacking rome they just sacked rome Mm -hmm. so they're like see because christianity calls you to turn the other cheek to be humble to love your enemies and uh, just be a a nice human being and not be a pagan um, that has made rome weak and and because of that Rome is falling. So Augustine writes the city of God as a res- another books as a response to this uh, pagan philosopher that was thinking. Interestingly, part of his art in Augustine's argument, he says that all these things that you're quoting, you know, these are Christian virtues that you're quoting. They're actually also praised in your own pagan myths, like or or history of the Roman Republic, when Caesar pardons people, instead of just beheading everybody, he was hailed as a hero because of his mercy. Mm-hmm. Mercy is a Christian, I mean, it is part of the of Christianity. And same also in some, in some myths, when there's generosity, mercy, humility, is carried out by the protagonist in the story, or fealty, courage, honor. These things are based in Christianity, you honor them. So, um, 
all this goes to he was what he's pointing out to is that Christianity doesn't make you weak because it actually even shares these same values written in the hearts of all of all humans and Rome had also had many problems before becoming Christian like Rome was sacked by the Celts by the Celts five well, oh my goodness 500 years before Christianity so clearly I don't think Christianity caused Rome to be sacked in that in that sense and all humans crave for justice and Augustine argues when Roman society and any other society too accidentally passes laws and lives a certain way that just so quote-unquote happened to line up with the will of God mm -hmm. it's like wow lo and behold the Roman Republic was beautiful was beautiful excellent everyone loved it and then the moment laws became corrupted twisted the empire happened there was injustice everywhere etc etc his point is even uh, every human craves these christian ideals and then therefore when you live even as a pagan if you live a certain way you bring benefit to society and then he goes into expand all the benefits that christianity brought into the roman empire so what I'm trying to say is, I don't know if you want to even attempt to summarize what I just said, because I'm rambling at this point, is that even if people in China, the Han Dynasty, in Ethiopia, Aksum, whatever, in Peru, the, who, the hell, who the heck were they at the time, Chavin, eh, Moche, if they run their society a certain way, that by accident, not knowing Yahweh, live in a, a rule a society in a way that reflects parts of the of the old testament law they will prosper mm -hmm. therefore it's good even for pagans to live under a christian society yes and let me hit home on that point because this is probably the last point of controversy that's in the conservative christian sphere on this topic right now is um some theonomists like doug wilson and others are planning like way ahead because yeah, what are we what's the state of the united states right now well we're currently super pagan and super anti-god god haters probably more god hating than we've been in our history which is, we have our ups and downs in u.s history if you read about it of god hating and then coming back to god and whatever else we're probably in the worst throw of it maybe maybe one of the worst at least um, in any case the current state of the united states is not a god-fearing nation so you know, we will only see change in the United States when the people of the United States become a God-fearing people. Everybody agrees with that, okay? Like, even Stephen Wolf, who I thoroughly disagree with on most of these Christian nationalist issues, also agrees that we're only going to see real change in the United States when there's real repentance from the people. So there's no disagreement on that. Um, some of these theonomists are thinking way ahead. So when when the U.S. inevitably has a turnaround, or should the Lord grace us with the turnaround, um, we want to be ready with what we should do with that turnaround because we should not just waste it. We shouldn't be like the the servant given talent and then just digs it and buries it and chills out. Um, we shouldn't use a revival that happened in the 60s or 70s and then just poop all over it. We should do something with it. And so um, they're planning a way out for when there's revival in the United States. Um, how should we change politics? And so one of the big questions is... Um, we don't want to let secularism and neutrality live. <laughs> once we have the upper hand, once again, should, should the Lord grant um, Christianity the upper hand in the United States, we should once again install Christian laws, including laws that require Christianity as part of the national religion or state religion or however you implement it. And that worries 
a lot of people because the United States has a good history of limiting sacralism, that is state religions. Um, and so when we hear people talking about creating state religions, that's really worrying because state religions can be extremely dangerous. And you can just look to the Middle Ages to see when well-intentioned, good, godly Christians were murdering other well-intentioned, good, godly Christians because of a disagreement on baptism. Happened in Switzerland, which was a model of reformed, good theonomy. Um, they were executing people who believed in um, believer's baptism, which is what Baptists all do today, right? So you want to be really careful with sacralism because um, it can be extremely dangerous and this, the state does not wield its sword in vain. So you end up killing people when you make the wrong decisions on sacralism. And so some Christians are trying to decide what should a properly Christian state look like? Um, Doug Wilson out of Idaho has said that if the United States were to come to repentance and we're making Christian laws, we should require a general... Um, acceptance of the Apostles' Creed to be a voting citizen. Um, now, he may change exactly the details of that. Maybe it's just to run for office or whatever else. But somehow, some adherence to the Apostles' Creed to be influencing the United States in politics. The Apostles' Creed, mind you, is a creed that even Roman Catholics can hold to, meaning that it's not necessarily Christians that hold to it. And anybody, anybody can say they believe in the Apostles' Creed and not actually believe it. So it's not actually requiring that Christians... Um, be part of government just because they're required to vow that the Apostles' Creed is true because they could be lying or they could be deceiving themselves. Um, and that's what some Christians like James White have pointed out. They pointed out and said, well, just because you require the Apostles' Creed does not mean that you end up with a truly Christian nation. Um, you end up, you could end up with just nominally Christian, people who say they're Christian but aren't actually Christian. To that, I say, amen, yes. The Apostles' Creed, requiring the Apostles' Creed does not create a Christian nation. But... <laughs> Here's where I disagree with James White. It is better to be a nominally Christian nation than to be a nominally pagan nation. It is. I mean, the, the Lord the Lord knows what's good. So the Lord knows in the long scheme whether or not it's good to be Christian or not nominally. Because um, maybe he has some grand plan on how he's going to use um, difficulty to make an even stronger Christian nation in the future. But we should all realize that the end goal is a nation that fears God. And so we shouldn't be pushing for things that don't fear God, pushing for politics that don't fear God. And so a God-fearing nation, even if it's a name only, is better than a nation that totally rejects God utterly. And so um, I, I'm all on board on some sort of blasphemy law in the United States. Um, I think you have to be very careful with it. So I'm also all on board on discussing exactly what is involved in this creed that people are required to swear to either run for office or maybe be a citizen or whatever else, or what constitutes blasphemy and whatever else. I'm, I'm all for that kind of conversation because I don't really have a position on it. Um, but I would say it is not a good position to say that we shouldn't even talk about it because we should. We should be prepared for if the Lord gives us um, revival in this country mm -hmm. again and what we do with it. Yep. And I would say the Roman Empire was better off after Theodosius made it the official religion, even though they were a bunch of pagans that were just baptized after the fact. I would say their lives considerably improved there were no more babies being thrown around the street left to be killed or any more human sacrifices or any wild any wild things that may be happening in prior roman society and to their credit the roman empire survives for another the east survives for another thousand years and they were i would say for most of them the emperors were committed to uphold christian law so i mean there's precedent you know there's a country that lives for over a thousand years that's that's a pretty good run. It is a pretty good run. 
And to them, this may be an, a, a, a last point. They may not say, but the U.S. was never meant to be a Christian nation, you guys. Why are you trying to make it so? Well, even if it wasn't, the question is, should it be? Right. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I think that's the best way to answer it. Because you can go into history and say, well, technically, like all the states had national religions and the federal government just was secular or whatever else. Um, but it doesn't matter, you know. The United States could have been founded Muslim, but here we are as Christians in the United States and we should be pushing for Christianity. Just like if we were in Saudi Arabia, we should be pushing for the conversion of Saudi Arabia. We shouldn't just say, live and let live, you know, these are Muslims here. Um, we should be pushing for conversion. And so all, in conclusion, I think what we're saying is properly defined, all Bible-believing Christians should be Christian nationalists. It just depends on how you're defining that. And we've talked about the pitfalls of the current Christian nationalist movement and what we should not embrace, like ethnocentrism or um, non-theonomic applications of Christian nationalism. Like uh, some in the Christian nationalist movement believe that we should join hands with the Roman Catholics and at least, um, like, say, you have to pretend like you believe in Christ to um, be in charge, like the whole Apostles' Creed thing. And I would say we should never join hands with those who reject the gospel. So um, I'm not part of that Christian nationalist movement either. But as long as we're saying we're trying to push for God's law in our nation for the betterment of our nation, that's that's Christian nationalism, and we should all agree with that. Mm -hmm. Any closing comments, Theodore? Oh, fun fact. In 18... <laughs> this is a good closing comment. From law.jrank.org, in 1856, the Republican Party's first national platform denounced polygamy and slavery <laughs> yes. as, quote, those twin relics of barbarism, end quote. Yep. And uh, that was why the Mormons ended up getting rid of polygamy, because <laughs> the Republican Party won, and they were afraid of being not allowed into the Union. So. And declared war on the... Uh... Yeah, you're still on the Mormonism train, aren't you? <laughs> Furthermore, the ban on polygamy originated in English common law. In England, polygamy was repudiate, repudiated because it deviated from Christian norms. Christian norm so based in the, the Bible. Nominal Christian nation. Uh, yes. And, sorry, should I offer one more closing thought? Do it. Yes. I just thought, I think this is neat. Um, so people attribute like the golden rule to Confucius, maybe the earliest. Um, don't. So he said, "Don't do to uh, don't do unto others what you don't want others to do unto you." And then from that we get, "Do unto others as you would have them, as you would have done to you." Because in the Bible, uh, the second commandment is, "Love your neighbor as." Wait, no. All right, I don't know. One of the commandments. The second greatest is, commandment. Yes. Second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. But then more recently, I found out in John chapter 13, verse 34, I think, um, Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love others as I have loved you. So, because obviously if you love your neighbor as yourself, but you don't love yourself perfectly, then you don't love your neighbor perfectly. And therefore, it's not perfect love. But... Jesus gives us the ultimate new command, holds us to the highest standard, um, which is most beneficial for everybody, which is love others as he has loved us. 
just thought that was neat. Yeah, it is. And, and screw Confucius. So, yeah. well, to, I was gonna say on the note, yes, yeah, screw Confucius, yes. But to his credit, you know, any human can pick up on certain traits or principles that are good for society because we would say we're all made in the image of God, and we have a tiny bit of that, whether pagan, or I mean, yes, or Buddhist or whatever other religion out there. Some of that is not an impulse, but maybe, you know, it's just hiding in there. As God said in the prophets that I will write their laws in their hearts. So I would say humans know what is sometimes what is good and what is bad. It is not clear. It's not crystal clear as you would if, as if you picked up the Old Testament or the New Testament. But it's kind of instinctively sometimes hidden in there. So Yeah, it's kind of survival of the fittest too, right? Like good societies win. And so... The societies that win are the ones that end up surviving, and the societies that win are ones that adhere to some form of God's law, because God's law, like you described, Sebastian, is the way things work, the way God set things up to work. So um, a winning society, like the Han Chinese, um, need to have adhered to some form of God's law in order to keep winning. And so it's not surprising that Confucius has a form of God's law, um, because he was a better influence on China than their previous paganism. Mm-hmm. Right, he's maybe just trying to pe- uh, keep people from killing each other because obviously you need to have some sort of togetherness so that you can build some big army that's cohesive that can <laughs> destroy others. <laughs> right, <laughs> just defend your lands. Uh-huh. Any last thoughts before our call as the phone calls? Uh, my last thought is that this is not, Christian nationalism is not a call that everyone should be involved in politics. There are definitely those who are not to be involved in politics. So this is not one of those... Um, missionary stump speeches where we say there are kids in Africa that are starving so if not you then who you know you got to send the money so equally we're not saying that um, politics needs Christians so if not you then who Um, (laughs) we're not saying that all we're asking in the Christian nationalist conversation is one to fear the bad side of it two to embrace the good side of it and three don't stab people in the back Christian fellow brothers and sisters in the back who are trying to influence politics for the good because you think for whatever reason you're scared of that like that's what we're really trying to do is just have those who are not called to politics not be stabbing those who are called to politics because there's enough of that happening in the Christian sphere. We don't need more of it. And don't take it from us. Take it from, again, from the Lord himself. Now, therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Who are the rulers nowadays? The president, the senators, house of representatives. Apply to any country that you're in. King of Morocco, you know, what the different positions that you're in. Kings in the Middle Ages, they had the symbol, the scepter of power with a cross on top. Mm-hmm. Because even though they, they could have owned, you know, the planet Earth, the, the Earth, the, the, the sphere symbolizes the Earth and the cross symbolizes who is above the Earth. And also their power, they said, was divinely given to them by God, recognizing that there's someone superior to them. Likewise, our call is, as an individual Christian, no matter where you're in life, the Lord calls us to live our lives in our faith in fear and trembling. And should you happen to be involved in politics, should you be in the military, that's not excuse to not live out your faith in fear and trembling. You have to even take more responsibility for your actions. And all of this goes to say is, if you're in such position, you should be working in a way that is consistent with your faith. You shouldn't just be ditching, being okay, complacent, you should be influencing your environment, whether it's as a father, as an engineer, theater, or 
a president of the U.S., whatever it may be, as a loving husband also to a theater, then uh, you should be letting your faith influence your duties and the people around you. Now, first, why we found our God. I was going to say, I was going to say, I was going to say, Michael, don't cut me, don't cut me off. I was going to say, I was going to say. Now, how does that start? How does that begin? How do we kiss the sun? How do we follow him? By repenting and believing in that very same Lord Jesus Christ, who is both our priest, our friend, our God, our king, our ruler, who's as long as you repent and trust solely in him, he will welcome you to his family. He'll welcome you. He'll give you citizenship in his kingdom where you'll be able to live forever in peace and joy. Do his work alone. Amen. And that's why we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been Michael Bam behind the machine and to my right and left has been Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And all the way over across the airway has been Theodore under the PC. Thank you for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you got to go to found cause.podbean.com and download them for your listening pleasure. That's audio only though. If you want to see our beautiful faces, you're going to have to go to YouTube. We're also on facebook.com forward slash found cause. Uh, and we're also on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you might listen to your podcasts. You can listen to us at three times speed on Spotify, which yes. is a gigantic benefit. Uh, I'm sure you can do that. Just it's <laughs> like impossible. Um, I was gardening today and listening to us at 2.5 times speed because it happens to come up and I was like, oh my gosh, we're fast. Uh, until next time, we talk about something completely different. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.